It's been a really strange offseason. Vis-a-vis dogs running onto the field. You made it. We're not sabermetricians. That's all behind us now. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. It was totally worth it. It was worth it. Totally worth it. Hey, welcome to another edition of the Flushing Transit Authority, a reveling in victory Mets podcast, at least for the time being. I'm Jay Bushman. I'm here with my co-host, Will Stegman. How's it going, Will? It's going good. My new name now is Will First Place Stegman (laughs) because I have adopted... The Mets standings, the Mets place in the standings as my middle name. I will keep that middle name until further notice. Wow, that's a dangerous, dangerous policy. I can't see it possibly going wrong. We're uh, we're uh, coming to the end of April, and the wagon has not fallen apart yet. No, the first of all, the bandwagon is moving smoothly. <laughs> it is couple of couple of bumps in the past week. It's very easy for us as fans to panic in a you know when a game goes poorly i panic when you know someone hits a fly ball yes it's super easy to get lost in the minutia of individual games it's nice for us to sit here every couple of weeks where we take the long view on things try to take the long so what do you want to talk about first well let me let me start with something that has really sort of been on my mind in the past couple of days because the mets have uh, uh played a couple of games in atlanta um, against the Braves and you know this isn't something new but it's just something that I, I just am full to the brim with at the moment which is how can we get them to stop that goddamn tomahawk chant that thing is so repulsive on the broadcast the other night Thursday night's game they actually brought that up over the years the Braves um, have eliminated some of the offensive imagery mm-hmm. if you remember there used to be uh, a mascot named, I believe, Chief Nakahoma, mm-hmm. who would be in a teepee yeah. um, mm-hmm. out in, you know, past the center of the offense. And they have a new mascot this year. So, you know, they've clearly made some strides. Even in Cleveland, they are working on phasing out Chief Wahoo. Mm-hmm. It's only 100 years too late, <laughs> but they're doing it. But the challenge here is going to be this isn't something that, as far as I can tell, the team is doing. This is something the fans are doing. And how are you going to get the fans to stop doing this? One of the great things about the Mets radio broadcasts is that you get this great feel for the ballpark. Yes. And the great sense of Mm -hmm. the crowd noise. Mm -hmm. Better than you get on TV because it's an audio medium. And you really hear it and it really stands out on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm all for... People uh, stopping that. Here we are, two white wolf guys here to you know tell you how terrible this this chant is. Like, yeah, I'm sure this has been obvious for a really long time. Right, this isn't anything new. I think for me, what it is is um, for a project that I've been working on uh, recently. I've been doing a lot of reading about um, the southeastern United States in the early 1800s and the Creek War and the Seminoles and. Like the the actual history of that area of the country, right. which is pretty horrific, mm-hmm. and now it's like mocking genocide with a baseball chant. Right, it's just it just it's it's anyway. I'm I'm with you, and you know it's important to remember. You know, and I always try to remind myself of this: is that. Something didn't become a problem the day I noticed it. Yes. You know? And the fact that I noticed, I can say 20 years after seeing it for the first time that this is offensive means I'm 20 years late to this particular party. (laughs) Because I think what it's going to take to change this in Atlanta is more people in the stands seeing this for what it is. I think the shortcut is, um, is that Donald Glover needs to buy the team. Ooh, I would um, like that. Yeah. Uh, then then, then we could have a nice, you know, Atlanta, the TV show, Atlanta, the baseball team crossover, and it's all good. I don't know how I feel about, like, Chipper Jones appearing on the <laughs> show Atlanta. I don't know. It'd be tough to write a part for him. So um, this is probably a good time to move on to the, um, the latest iteration of what is an ongoing segment, uh, an ongoing question which is, what's wrong with Matt Harvey? Yeah. <laughs> put, put a pin in that for one second. Let's talk about 
sort of something we laid out early before the season started, mm-hmm. where I had said, this team will be as good as Matt Harvey is. Now, clearly, I was wrong on that. <laughs> now, still April. Still, still April. But Matt Harvey's first start of the season, he looked solid. Um, I was excited to see him pitch well. You know, he's not a guy who's going to give you six or seven innings, but he pitched five solid innings, no runs, um, looked really good. Um, I was greatly encouraged. His second start, not as good. Mm-hmm. That's life. Matt Harvey is not the Matt Harvey we thought he was. And I thought, okay, well, in a perfect world, Matt Harvey morphs into Frank Tanana, mm-hmm. a guy who started out as a hard-throwing right. fireball, just who, through injuries, morphed into a finesse, outthink you, get you out with guile mm-hmm. pitcher, and had a tremendous career. I was like, that would be great. I would co-sign on Frank Tanana, the Frank Tanana Matt Harvey transformation in a heartbeat. In the two starts he's had since then, we have not seen that. Yeah, yeah, we have not. And I, I have, I will admit, I have had an evolution of my feelings about what to do. I no longer am looking for Matt Harvey to recover a a form so he can be a positive uh, and useful pitcher. I am looking for Matt Harvey to pitch well so he establishes some trade value. Because as it stands right now, um, this is Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey is not under contract no. for next year. There is a better than average chance that... Um, Matt Harvey just gets non-tendered. Possibly. Um, Possibly. And where, where we are at with him is... There, there's a very interesting confluence of events here, which is the Mets have too many starting pitchers. The Mets now have uh, some needs in some other places. We're getting to that point, end of April, beginning of May, where you start to shake up the roster as the assumptions that you've made in spring training don't pan out. Fairly certain, unless something changes dramatically, Jose Reyes will not be with us much longer. Um, the the big thing, of course, is catchapocalypse, um, <laughs> which for those of you who uh, who do not follow the minutia, the in the day to day minutia of the Mets, on one day the Mets lost both their starting catchers, Travis Darnell, out for the year. How many times have we said that? Too many. Too many times. Uh, Kevin Plowecki broke a bone in his hand. They say he will be out two to three weeks. But you never really know. And so it's my belief that some of the hiccups that the Mets have gone through in the past week and a half are due to throwing to new catchers. Right. Now, let's put this in perspective. Those hiccups hiccups the Mets have gone through since we spoke last two weeks ago is that the Mets have lost four games in a period of two weeks. (laughs) The sky is falling. Let's put this in perspective. When we met two weeks ago... The Mets were 6-1, and one, mm-hmm. and we were super excited. Mm-hmm. The Mets went on to win the next four games. Yes. Um, basically, again, winning a 10-1 and one record is terrific. Best record in baseball. Today, they are 14-5. and five. They are solidly in first place. And as we've said, you know, many times, um, and we were talking about this off mic beforehand, why are we worried? Yeah. Like, if I was on the moon, <laughs> and I came back from the moon where... And they didn't get SNY up on the moon, which they don't get SNY they, in Los Angeles, so they're not going to get it on the moon. Well, no, no. They have SNY on the moon. It just costs extra. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't... You get the bundle. You right. You the lunar bundle. I was only going to be there for four days. <laughs> so, why spend a whole month's worth? Right. I sure. called, and I'm like, hey, can I just get four days of SNY? And they're like... 30 days or nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah, they've got to position the satellites the right way. It's, totally. Yeah. So I didn't get it. So I get back to Earth, and I find out the Mets are in first place. I don't know their win-loss record, but they've got a clear 2-3 game lead on the surprising Phillies. The Nationals are five games out, and it's only April 21st. Well, I think life is great. Mm-hmm. Really, what do we have to panic about? Well, I'll tell you what we have about because there's always something to panic about in Mets land um, and you can look at this uh, one of two ways you know they have won a lot but they have not been dominant these there's been a lot of luck 
which Jam, I'm, great. Ro- I'm rolling my eyes at you right now. I'll take now. luck. I'll take luck. But they've been lucky. Like the game last night, they made many, many, many mistakes. And they just so happened to, you know, tiptoe through the raindrops and win a game in 12 innings. Okay. There has been a lot of, you know, I mean, Cespedes, I mean, Cespedes is a great example. Cespedes has had three game-winning hits, but like a million and a half strikeouts, and mm-hmm. he's hitting like like barely 200. So this is one of those things where every game is, who knows? There isn't a sense of like, I imagine a Red Sox fan today right. feels like they can beat anybody. Right. Who shows up? We don't have that yet, and you know what? That's okay. That's fine. That's this is more than we we would have expected, but it still means that um, there are some weaknesses. There are some glaring problems. A lot of time to address them, but it's still not the most comfortable of you know first places in April. Right. And look, I share all of your feelings. Yes. I roll my eyes at you only because. It's funny to hear the same worries that I have sort of fed back to yes. me. It's funny because, you know, we are in touch sort of throughout the, you know, in-between broadcasts mm-hmm. here. We'll keep in touch about games. We'll talk about stuff. It is very easy for me to be like, you know, we're doing this with smoke and mirrors. This has got to end. But when I hear it out of my head, <laughs> it I start crazy. to think, yeah. it sounds crazy because... Yeah. Well, the Mets have always been this way, and the thing is, they generally lose the games where they've got to tiptoe through the raindrops. Yeah. It's possible that this is a better constructed team, and it's possible that Mickey Calloway's and Dave Island's process for how they manage the bullpen, despite a couple of hiccups lately, is working. And, you know, this is the thing that we talked about excessively last year was there didn't feel like there was a process processes systems how things were working behind the 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 scenes that we couldn't see it just didn't seem like there was much of anything that made any sense right and it seems like one of the main things that this new regime has put into place is a system whereby yeah like like what the outcome on the field does is one thing but how we got there is the most important thing so listening to it's funny listening to the reporters talk to mickey calloway after each game and he's just like yeah you know it just it did happen like like we're just gonna like move on from here yep and not panicking and and you know new york reporters are always so you know like like ferreting out any kind of like little chink in the armor any kind of verbal tick to be like well do you mean this do you mean this do you mean this do you mean this Going back to Matt Harvey where, you know, they asked him about, like, the bullpen and he was like, I'm a starter. And then we have two days of Matt Harvey's pride and ego stories where it's like, chill out. Like, you asked him a question, he answered what he thought, you are spinning it into, like, a moral argument. Right. Don't be upset because you didn't get the answer you want. You know, um, my father-in-law, who is, is an attorney, always says... Don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Yes. yes. And, and if, if Matt Harvey is guilty of anything more than not pitching well, it's not talking to reporters well. But and that's fine. A, that's He's, a skill. He and, speaks honestly. Yeah. Um, and that's something that, you know, has caused him problems. Yes. But I think, look, you should believe in yourself. Yeah. I wish I had Matt, Matt Harvey's confidence. Right. You know, here's, I mean, here's the contrast is when they pulled Steven Matz out of the game a couple of days ago in the fourth inning. Yeah. And he was upset. And they asked Mickey after the game and he was like, I want them to be upset. I want them to be angry. I want them to feel like they should be in there. That's what, that's the kind of aggressiveness we want out of our pitchers. So when Matt Harvey does it, you got to hold them to the same sort of accountability level. Not, you know, find a way to make it a personal flaw um, for someone who isn't playing well. Now, that being said, I want Matt Harvey to play well because I want to trade him. (laughs) Because um, we have to find... He's in that sweet spot where if he can prove value, he's worth a risk, right? He's never going to be a sure thing at this point, Mm -hmm. but... 
what we need to find is we need to find a trading partner that is willing to take the gamble on a Harvey resurgence with low downside. Here's the the counterpoint to that. Mm -hmm. I'm a GM of one of the other 29 ball clubs. Why do I do that when I know there's a better than average chance that the Mets are not going to sign him after this year and I could pick him up for something close to the league minimum for 2019. Well, here's my here's and here's where you have to get into like me playing fantasy GM and this mm-hmm. was the story I was telling myself before Matt Harvey's start, which is if he can string together a couple of good starts where it makes him look like oh, he's on an upswing and he's in this contract year, you trade him now to some team that is hedging that he will continue to be dominant and then they can retrade him at the trading deadline. Got it. And there's one team in mind who I think of when I think of these kinds of moves. Are you thinking of? I'm thinking of the Oakland A's. Yes. And the Oakland A's happen to have the player we need right now. Okay. Everyone's talking about, and we talked we talked briefly before about Catchapocalypse. Mm-hmm. And with Catchapocalypse, now all anyone wants to talk about is, well, then the Mets should go trade for JT Real Muto. I would love for the Mets to trade for JT Real Muto. I would love for him to be our catcher mm-hmm. for the next five years. It's going to cost us Ahmed Rosario. It's going to cost us Brandon Nimmo. It's going to cost us one of those um, um, single-A first-round draft picks that we got, Justin Dunn. The cost is too high. The cost is too high. The A's signed... Jonathan Lucroy to a one-year, $6 million contract in spring training. He hmm. is not on the A's for the long term. Nope. That is a, we sign him for nothing now so we can trade him later. Which now, is a typical A's move. The idea of trading Matt Harvey for Jonathan Lucroy straight up is ridiculous. No, it's... It, well, I mean, it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous Luke Lucroy has a lot more value right. than Harvey does. But that's the kind of deal that I, I would love them to be able to pull off. A like, here are some hedge play like here are some players that that you can turn around later in the season right. to make a deal for. I think getting Lucroy will not cost us the, nearly as much. I don't know what it would cost us. I really don't want them to trade Brandon Nimmo. Um, I really like any he gets hit by a pitch. And he smiles and runs down to first base. Like this I, is the kind I've of guy become you want a your team. big fan of Brandon Nimmo. But Lucroy, I think. I mean, we've been hearing his name for the past couple of years. Every time he becomes available, how like that's a fit. Now is the time. I I agree with you that Lucroy would be an upgrade over um, the options at catcher right now. The thing that squashes this deal to me, and where mm-hmm. we find ourselves with a rare disagreement of opinions, mm-hmm. but hey, that makes for good podcasting, is. It is very easy to find right-handed pitchers who can throw the low 90s and give you five innings. Yes. So the A's can find that with a fourth and fifth starter for any team in the major leagues. Absolutely. And so this was what I was thinking about before Harvey took the mound when I was like, oh, he strings together a couple more starts where the narrative is, hey, it looks like we might be getting the old Harvey back. Does that make it worth the risk? This version, totally not going to happen. So, you know, the question then becomes if Sandy Alderson is talking to his old buddies in the Oakland front office and they start talking about what would it take to get Jonathan Lucroy, well, I don't know what that is. Right. But by May 1st or the first week of May, I expect there to be some new faces on this team, whether or not it's at catcher, whether or not it's bid a fond farewell to Mr. Reyes. Right. Um, that we tweak some things a little bit. Um, generally, it would have happened by now due to massive injuries. That hasn't happened right. yet. Knock on table. Um, but we'll see. Maybe what it needs is um, it's too bad he's not he's not working in your Bobby Valentine types, mm-hmm. the guys who think I'm smarter than everybody. Give me that guy. We'll fix him. You know that is a good good. Good point because never forget Scott Casimir mm-hmm. and Victor Zambrano and the yeah. I can fix him in five minutes. Yep, that's why I brought Is it there up. There's someone out there who looks at Matt Harvey and goes, "I can fix him in five minutes." Let's find that guy. And what you hope is there's a manager 
and a pitching coach mm-hmm. with enough of an ego mm-hmm. that they're looking at tapes and going, we can fix this guy. And I'm, to be honest, if they can and Matt Harvey goes Good somewhere else Matt. and they fix him, I'm fine with that. Yep. That's great. I would at this point accept anything that another team wants to offer because as a fan of a player, I, n- I don't want to see anybody yeah. fail. But um, I think the more important thing is whether, you know, whatever Harvey's fate is, I think the, the, the more important thing for us at this moment is um, Jose Lobatone and Thomas Nito are not the answer at catcher. Although, to be um, fair to Nito, you know, was pretty good. He had a good game last, last night, but night. he is still a double-A catcher. Mm-hmm. And he still totally. needs a lot of time to develop. And maybe Plawecki comes back okay in two to three weeks, but I'm not sure. And he looked good at the beginning of the season, but how much do we want to lean on Plawecki as our number one catcher? Right. Not not as a not as a part of a platoon. So it seems like we're in that stage when, like the if you read the articles, they're like, um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, they're kicking the tires on a trade. No, they're not. That that's got all the hallmarks of. They're starting to talk to people, but they're trying to like, yeah, be like, hey, we're not the, yeah. uh, dampen the story. We're not really, you know, desperate here, yeah, because so, again, the record doesn't, yeah, doesn't give us a reason to be. They've desperate. got a surplus of, they've got a surplus of pitchers. Never have a surplus. They've of got pitchers. a deficit of catchers. Um, they've got Reyes taking up a roster spot that that. Is useless. Yeah, I, I don't understand at this point why Reyes hasn't just been, um, you know, DFA'd. They, I think they will. Yeah. I, I think they're still finishing out the evaluation. I think they're giving him a little bit more rope to try, but like like I, like May 1st, I think May 1st rolls around and they're going to start making these decisions. Right. They got to find a way to get more playing time for Brandon Nimmo, whether or not that means putting Jay Bruce in the DL for a while to heal his foot. Right. Um, but we're coming up at that point where, all right, we've had a month. Now let's start tweaking the roster. Right. Because going into the season, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of question marks. Yeah. You know, would Adrian Gonzalez oh, contribute at first base? Never saw that one coming. And me neither. So the idea was, hey, we'll give Gonzalez a shot. And if he doesn't produce, maybe we move Jay Bruce to first base. Yeah. Well, Gonzalez has been respectable. Come up I think with some he's big been hits. more than I think he's been. I think he's been. Look for what the Mets are paying him. Because remember, yeah. the Atlanta Braves are paying most of of Adrian Gonzalez's yes. contract. Yes. Um, which and is, you know, I will say that this is, I think, one of the things that I have noticed so far this season. That you know, we talked about how easy it is to panic, but there's something reassuring about the middle of this order right now. When you go. Fordo, Cespedes, Bruce, Frazier, Gonzalez. Like, these are professional hitters. Right. And it reminds me of the days in the late 90s. And we'll be talking about the late 90s in a little bit uh, uh, some more. But it reminds me of, you know, Alfonso, Olerud, Ventura, Piazza. Like, this, like, like, it's, I wouldn't call it a murderer's row, but it's a just, these guys hit. These are professional hitters. Right. You had a lineup. You had five solid yeah. big league hitters. And then when you look at the current Mets, you can add in Estrubo Cabrera, the, mm-hmm. yeah. who has been... Dynamite. Who's been great. Dynamite. Did you hear... They said this on the um, on the telecast yesterday. Um, they were talking about um, Joe Madden went off on a kind of a, a, a rant, a tirade. Yeah. About he didn't want to hear anything about launch, launch angles, angles. Yeah. anymore. And I was like, yes, I'm so with that. The great thing about this lineup, singles and doubles. Stacking singles and doubles. Like, yes, home runs are exciting. But a sequence of crisply hit singles and doubles is so much fun to watch. Well, you know, as a baseball player, as a batter, you have one primary job. And it is to not get out. Yes, Anything you can do is positive. And you know, home runs are sexy. I love home runs. But yeah, stringing together a couple of singles, having a double knock two runners in. Um, you know, the Mets put together one of my favorite rallies of all time last night mm-hmm. in, the tw- in the 12th inning with a Robert Gesellman hit by pitch. On a button. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just, I love, just barely hit, just the, barely hit the uniform. Hit yeah. 
he comes around to score. Yeah. Now, side note, did you see the conversation that took place in the locker room after not. that? Here is why I love this Mets team. Because they are essentially a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> on the pitching staff especially. And it's not something you associate with a big market team like the Mets. But after the game was over, Gesellman says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's like, I'm the fastest pitcher on the Mets. Okay. Noah Syndergaard isn't even close. So, of course, <laughs> reporter doing their due diligence goes to Syndergaard and right. says, hey, did you hear what Gesellman said? And he's like, he said that? He's <laughs> um, like, he basically... They have fun with each other. They joke around about it. And Syndergaard says words to the effect of, well, I'm going to have to teach him a lesson. Maybe take his Christmas presents away. <laughs> so then a reporter says, are you uh, Gesellman's daddy? To which Noah Syndergaard replies, sometimes. Sometimes he has to be taught a lesson. Now, of course, I don't think that either the reporters or Noah Syndergaard understand the other connotations of that phrase. Perhaps not. But I think it's fantastic that yes. maybe they do, and they're playing into that for fun, or maybe right. that's what they do. Whatever, you know, whatever helps team chemistry. Whatever helps team chemistry. Have we seen the resurgence of last year's mystery locker room dildo yet? Not yet, but this is possible. Well, of course, Ploiecki is on the DL. Oh, that's true. So yeah. we don't know. We never found out who we did that, did we? Out. No, we Someday never we will know. Yeah. I'm waiting for, like, Jeff Perlman to do a, <laughs> an expose on that. But I love... This team, like, they seem like the, like, I haven't had as They're much fun. fun. They're having fun. Yeah. And, and that's the important thing. Like, like, we can, as, as we have talked about, we can be prone to doom and gloom really, really easily. So it's nice to have this sort of sense of looseness and, yeah. and you know, having the salt and the pepper. That helps quite a bit. I'm starting to, you know, I, last time we spoke, I was like, I am not a fan of the, well, I, I thought of you, we haven't talked about this, but I, I thought you would really appreciate Todd Frazier's response to the two losses to the Nationals, which was, so they had, he had gone out and he had bought this giant pepper grinder I saw that, that was going to be the equivalent of, you know, two years ago, it was, they gave the championship belt and out, the crowns. and then it was the crowns, which I, you know, insisted was not a crown, but it was a tiara. But um, this year's version was the giant salt and pepper shaker that he bought. And the day after he bought it, they lost two games to the Nationals. So Frazier threw it out. Yep. Only way to do it. Throw Only it out. It's bad luck. It. Bad luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this team is winning games, and they're playing loose, and they're fun. Um, and I'm just looking forward to every game. Yeah. And that's a great feeling. That is a, that is, that is a great feeling. And we keep nothing better than that. We keep wanting to tune in. That when the game is on, it's like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens yeah. today. Yesterday, you know, I was... I was Bouncing around the house, taking care of things, and I'm like, Atlanta. It's a it's a 7:30 Eastern start, 4:30 Pacific. Mm -hmm. At 4:30, I was sitting in front of the TV, ready mm -hmm. to go, mm -hmm. because it's become appointment viewing for yes. me. And you know, maybe come August, I'll feel differently, but I hope not. So we're feeling happy right now, yep. which is great. But last week, we last had a week little it was bit rough. of a we had a little bit of a hiccup, and and. It's, you know, it's something that we should talk a little bit about because, you know, we talk all the time about narratives, about, you know, sort of framing these kind of stories in our heads. And I'll be honest with you. So it's Monday of last week and I'm downtown and I'm listening to the game uh, in my car and DeGrom is cruising and the Mets are winning six to one in the first game of a three-game series against the Nationals. And I'm starting to think to myself, hey, wait a minute. We swept the Nats last week. We're going to sweep them again. That's six wins in April. We're going to put the hammer down on them right away. So now, before we go any further, I need to sort of set the scene here a little bit. So I'm in my car. I'm in the 110. I'm on the 110. Um, going to the, uh, back to driving back to my house in West LA, which means you take the 10 freeway. Now, for those of you who do not live in Los Angeles, uh, the 10 freeway, especially during rush hour, um, the traffic moves so slowly 
you could get lapped by Wilmer Flores on foot. <laughs> like Wilmer could outrace you. But one of the great things about having um, baseball back, especially on your phone, is that you can just sort of put the game on and it doesn't matter. I'm, go I'm negotiating the off-ramp from the 110 South to the 10 West. The Mets are winning 6-1. to one. I'm starting to think about I'm starting to think about 1986. And I'm starting to think about in April of 1986, the Mets swept a four-game series against the Cardinals. And it was like the declaration that this was the season that it was going to happen. And if we may revisit that, mm -hmm. because I remember being a little kid, mm -hmm. being maybe, I don't think I had even turned 12 yet, 11-year-old Will watching that first game of the series. I remember this as vividly as almost anything in my life. Howard Johnson turning around on a Todd Warrell fastball yep. and crushing it. Yeah. And that was the point where the Mets put their foot on the gas yes. and ran away with it. And at six to one, I felt the same way. Yeah, so I'm sitting in my car and I'm starting to think about like what this means and how this could be the start of a cakewalk magical season like 1986. And, you know, and the other part of it is, you know, since we've started doing this podcast, something else I always start thinking about is like, oh, like, what, what stories can I tell on the, on the podcast? So I'm starting to sketch out, oh, I can, I can go back and I can look at this, this series from 1986 and this four game Cardinal series and what it meant. And as I'm thinking about this, it slowly becomes apparent to me, I'm going to need to find a new story. <laughs> Ah, the best laid plans because of mice and Mets fans. a parade of bullpen arms comes in in that eighth inning and they can't get anybody out and the Nats keep scoring. And so I get on the 10 freeway downtown, the Mets are winning 6-1 to one and everything looks incredible. I get off the 10 freeway at home, it's the worst loss of the season. In just that one commute, traffic. Now, <clears throat> skip forward two days. I'm going the other direction. I'm driving <laughs> from my place in West LA to an appointment I have in Koreatown. Now, again, for those of you who don't know Los Angeles, getting to Koreatown means no freeways, just surface streets. So if Wilmer Flores could lap you on the 10, taking surface streets to Koreatown, it would be faster if you got a piggyback ride from Bartolo Colon. Wow. And as I'm leaving West LA, the Mets are losing 4-2. to They had lost the previous day. So now we're facing down a sweep. We're facing down the Nationals sweeping us at home. And this is a nightmare. This is like the whole narrative of our like amazing start of the season gone. Remember, we go into that series. They're winning 6-1 in Game 1. The Nats come into that series seven games behind the Mets in the loss column. And if you're me, you're thinking, Mets sweep this. Nats are 10 games out at the end of this. Done. Game over. Yes. But now, with the Nats sweeping us, the season might as well start over again from scratch. Again, not really in the standings, but we're talking about narrative. We're talking about the lull Mets. We're talking and about... How do we feel as fans when the team that always crushes you crushes you yet again? Yeah. They came in and they stole our lunch money yet again. So I'm inching eastward as the eighth inning starts. And I'm miserable, and I'm surly, and I'm cranky. But you know what? By the time I got to Koreatown, <laughs> I was practically giddy. Because that eighth inning, they scored nine runs in one inning, in one trip to Koreatown. It's the perfect bookend to Monday's traffic. Wednesday's traffic. So clearly, when I'm listening to the Mets in the car, I need to always head east, not west. Right? Okay. This is what we've learned. Good things are east. But so it got me thinking about another time when the traffic worked out just right. So let's fire up the low spark of high-heeled boys and let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about October 17th, 1999. Oh boy. Let's go. Game five of the National League Championship Series, Mets versus Braves. Now we all know this game now as about how it ended with Robin Ventura's famous Grand Slam single. But the thing is, when you go back and you look at highlights about a dramatic ending to a game, 
You never see the hours and hours of gut-wrenching, edge-of-your-seat tension that creeping ahead in traffic as you don't know what's going to happen before that one amazing eruptive moment at the end. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit. I want to set the scene for this game, right? So the Mets got to the World Series in 2000, but the 99 team has always sort of felt more like the team of my heart from that era. In 99, they still had John Olerud playing first base. They had not yet replaced him with Todd Zeal. They hadn't acquired Mike Hampton with his ornery disposition and his disdain for the New York school systems. Uh, they hadn't given up on Melvin Mora yet. Um, it was the year of Mojo Rising, right? When every win was was punctuated by playing L.A. Woman, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it worked. It, de- it did. So there was just something about the 99 team that was more lovable, less likely, um, even though the 2000 team got further. The 99 team snuck into the playoffs. They had a collapse at the end of the season, but then they won a play-in game against the Reds. They beat the Diamondbacks with an epic walk-off home run from backup catcher Todd Pratt. And then they faced our perennial nemesis at the time, Atlanta, in the NLCS. And they proceeded to drop the first three games. And it was awful. Yes, it was. In game four, the Braves were four outs away from clinching the series. And they brought in all-around asshat and Scooby-Doo lookalike John Rocker. Olerud comes up with Roger Cedeno on second and Melvin Mora on first. And after a double steal, they're on second and third. Then Olerud singled them in and put the Mets ahead. And this is the moment of that famous photo. I tweeted this out on the, on the Flushing Transit account yesterday. Uh, the famous photo of Cedeno and Mora leaping into the air, like bumping chests, and it, grabbing yes. onto each other. And, and when it you... looks like they're 15 feet off the ground. Yes. And Rocker just head hung yes. down on the mound. Yes. One of my favorite images. It's, a, it's wonderful. So uh, then Armando Benitez, the closer, comes in and shuts the Braves down in a very uncharacteristic for him, one, two, three, top of the night. And the Mets live to fight another day. So the next game is, the next day is game five. It was a Sunday. And it was rainy. It's not the kind of rain that drenches you all at once. This was like a sneakier rain. And it, but it weighs you down. It was a persistent drumbeat I of remember. misery, yeah. right? Enough to make you annoyed, but not enough to cancel the game. So they're playing through it. At the time, I was living in Manhattan on the upper, upper west side, uh, around 103rd Street. And I was visiting my parents that day. They were living up in Nyack, uh, up in Rockland County. Okay, so... We need to talk about Rockland County for a minute. Rockland is where I grew up. And despite what anybody says, it is not upstate. Okay? Well, Seriously. This is a sore point for We've discussed this before. Right? As a Long Islander, anything Westchester and above is upstate. But it's not above Westchester. I realize that. It's parallel. It's the southernmost point of New York west of the Hudson River. It is not upstate. Actually, at the time... I thought of it as a sort of a typical suburban area, but it was only later on when I went back a few years ago after living in cities for years that I really saw just how rural it was. I mean, not it's not farm country or it's, you know, it's not middle of the woods, but it was not Long Island. The area I grew up in was sort of the middle of the county, uh, Spring Valley, New Hempstead. If you remember, if you remember Sex in the City, there's an episode of Sex in the City when Carrie and Aiden take a weekend trip to a cabin in the middle of nowhere in a town called Suffern. And they have a lot of fun with these Suffern, suffering puns in that. Suffern was one town over from where I grew up. All right, you were aspiring to right. get to Suffern. Uh, Suffern is also the home of Walt Weiss, uh, who will figure in this story a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after my sister and I both left for college, my parents moved to Nyack, which is still in Rockland County, but it's on the Hudson River like right in sight of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Nyack is about 20 miles north of Manhattan. So I go up to visit my parents in Nyack and to watch the game with my dad. My sister Dana was also there, uh, along with her friend Alana. Um, and we planned the day so that I would go up, I'd watch the game with my dad, and that when it was over, my dad would drive all of us back into the city. Cool. You'd think by now that I would I'd have learned you can never plan for the end of a baseball game much less a playoff baseball game, much less one the Mets are involved in. 
So the Mets jump out to a 2-0 lead in the bottom of the first on a two-run home run by the previous night's hero, John Olerud. The Braves tied it in the fourth after a series of doubles off of starter. And when was the last time you thought about this name, Masato Yoshi? Ooh, ah. um, I don't know that I have thought about that name since that game. And there the score stayed tied at 2-2. Two to two. So now the plans for the day are really messed up, right? Dana and Alana have to get home. We're reaching the end of regulation. And you get in that moment where you're like, how long do we stay? You got to make a choice. How long do we do we get in the car, right? So we get in the car. It's still raining, this awful kind of mist rain everywhere. My dad and I get in the front seat, put the game on the radio. Dana and Alana in the back seat. And off we drive into the rainy night, inching down the Palisades Parkway, bumper to bumper. Yes. Uh, inching down the Palisades Parkway, bumper to bumper, to the George Washington Bridge, which doesn't exist in any form other than jam-packed. And we're inching down the West Side Highway as the 10th inning passes, as the 11th inning passes, where it, there's a moment where it seems like Olerud might actually win this one too. He hits this long fly ball except the rain knocks it down and right. it becomes just a, a simple out. The 12th inning, as we're on the West Side Highway, when your favorite, Bobby Bonilla, comes up and he could have hit a home run to win it, but <laughs> instead he, you know, struck out. So, like I said, I was living around 103rd Street. My sister was living in Hell's Kitchen at the time. So usually when my, you know, my dad would drive us back in the city, he'd drop me off first, and then he would drop my sister off. No, that's not what we did this time. We drove... Down to Hell's Kitchen first, because I'm not about to like stop get it, get out of this car. So we drive down to 51st Street. We drop Dana and Alana off, and then we z- turn around and we go back uptown to 103rd Street as the 13th inning rolls around. So we're heading uptown to 103rd Street, and my dad almost crashes the car when uh, Chipper Jones almost drives Keith Lockhart in. Only to have him gunned down at the plate by a perfect relay throw. Melvin Mora to Edgardo Alfonso to Mike Piazza. Dead. Oh, Melvin Mora. Edgardo Alfonso. Mike Piazza. Yeah. Anyway, we finally get to my neighborhood as the 14th inning is starting. And they tell us on the radio that Piazza was coming out of the game. He had suffered a concussion in game three. He had just been collided with at this play in the plate. And, and if you'll remember, he missed most of the NLDS because he had a hand injury and they gave him a cortisone shot and his hand swelled up. I remember. So if you're in the market for a bad omen, you could not get worse than the Mets superstar leaving the extra inning elimination game in the middle of the 14th at the 14th inning stretch. Yeah. But around this time, in the middle of the 14th, we get to my place and we find a parking spot. Now there's the big decision. Do we sit in the car and keep listening? I mean, after all, they hadn't lost yet. Mm-hmm. What if leaving the car means they would suddenly lose the game? Alternately, they hadn't won yet either. Maybe if we went inside, it would change the mojo and they would score. What do you do here? Do you it's do? a big decision. It's a huge decision. So keep in mind also, it's still raining. It's awful out there. This is a decision that could have tremendous implications huge it's all on our shoulders right everything forget the pressure bobby valentine is under it's all on our shoulders we took the chance we go inside bold bold move fire up the tv for the bottom of the 14th there's a mets put up a small threat benny agbayani steals a base but they went down and it was on to the 15th and in the 15th, we immediately thought we'd made the wrong choice because, again, Keith Lockhart... Get back in the car. ...triples to drive in Suffren's own Walt Weiss. <laughs> and the Braves took a 3-2 to two lead. And so it's on to the bottom of the 15th. Now, what often gets forgotten with epic comebacks is that somebody has to start it. Somebody has to be first. Somebody has to do something that stops the momentum slot that, and open, opens up a glimmer of hope. Bottom of the 15th, it was leadoff batter Sean Dunstan. Yes. That's his biggest at bat as a Met. With a full count, Dunstan fouled off six consecutive pitches. An amazing to stay at bat. alive. 
And, you know, you can imagine the tension each time just, like, ratcheting. It reminded me of... of it's, it's the only other thing I've ever seen that comes close to Mookie Wilson's at-bat in Game 6 yeah. of 1986, where just he just keeps fouling it off and fouling it off, where any time, like, he could swing and it's all done. So Dunstan hits... On the 12th pitch, Dunstan hits a single up the middle. Right. right. Dunstan does not check out. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Nice. little movie reference there. Next, pinch hitter, Matt Franco. Pinch hitter extraordinaire. Kurt Russell's Walks. nephew. Puts the tying run in scoring position. Winning run on first. Edgardo Alfonso sacrifices, pushes them into scoring position. John Olerud is intentionally walked to set up force plays at every base, bringing up the catcher spot, which should be Mike Piazza, but isn't. It's Todd Pratt. Now, Pratt has already won a huge series for us, so, you know, it's not that terrible. Um, Pratt was never really known for his eye as a hitter or for his restraint works out a walk brings the time run high game and everyone exhales right so by now we're convinced that getting out of the car and coming inside was the right move if nothing else you know you've lived for another inning right yes we made the right call but it's getting later and it's getting later and the rain is showing no sign of letting up so my dad announces that no matter what happens at the end of this inning he was going to head home afterwards. Okay, fair. If it was still tied, he'd probably make it home in time for the bottom of the 18th. Okay. Um, Robin Ventura stepped to the plate with the bases loaded. And Robin Ventura took my dad off the hook. And this one is famous. Yeah. But for any, anyone who does not know or doesn't remember, with the bases loaded and one out, all it would take is a sacrifice fly to score the winning run from third. And Ventura hit the fourth pitch of the at-bat to right field. And as soon as it left the bat, it was clear that the Mets had won. That for the second straight day, they had looked elimination in the face at the hands of their fiercest rivals and said, nope. Shea was bedlam. Todd Pratt, the runner at first, never made it to second. He turned around and jumped in Ventura in celebration just a moment before the rest of the team came spilling onto the field in a congratulatory heap. Just one problem. Ventura's sacrifice fly cleared the fence. It was a grand <laughs> slam. But because Ventura never made it around the bases, the official scorer could not give him credit for that grand slam, just a single. So the final score was 4-3 to three instead of 7-3. to three. They say that when you use magic, it has unexpected side effects. Here is exhibit A of that. Of course, it all came crashing down two days later as the Mets ran out of that magic in Atlanta, losing Game 6, also in extra innings, and etching the name of Kenny the Gambler Rogers into our <laughs> bad books for all time. But that is a story for another day. Yes. The moral of this story, well, honestly, I'm not exactly sure what the moral of this story is, other than I guess it doesn't really matter where you watch or listen to the game as long as you're with the right people. Yes, and I love the image of... That game is over. You and your dad sit there and probably look at each other and say, what the heck did we just see? Pretty much. You hug. Your dad picks up his keys and says, my work here is done. Pretty much. And drives up to Nyack. Yes. Cool, calm, collected, enjoys the drive. Yeah. Because that's great. Yeah. You know, I think about that game all the time. It's like, you, if you, listeners, if you could see the smile on my face just thinking about that game... Because, you know, I already lived in L.A. at that time. Mm -hmm. And my 30-second story to tackle onto that is I was watching it with my girlfriend. Um, and she was so stressed out by the game that after the 13th inning, she decided it was a good time to go outside and wash her car. Ooh. Because that was less stressful right. than watching the game. So she was out there for two innings. And when the Braves... Took their lead. I kind of poked my head out and was like, you may want to come and watch this. This could be the end. Mm -hmm. So she wrapped up what she was doing and she came in and we watched it together. And like that was, it's just a great moment. And, yeah. it's, and it's one of those things that I'm so glad that she was there for it. Um, because like the only thing better than having a fantastic moment like that is having a fantastic moment and having someone there to share it with you. Totally. Um, and it's amazing, and that's why we're here talking about this, because really, as much as we are fans of the team, 
if not for the sort of community that we build around the team, you know, we would this would be a very lonely experience. And this to me is one of the sort of misguided things when they always talk about how like pace of play is a quote unquote problem and how like more action needs to happen or even people who are like I don't like baseball it's boring it's the moments in between the plays yeah that all the tension builds it's that moment of anticipation it's that moment of like oh my god he fouled off another one like what's going to keep happening that that you know the as the tension mounts it becomes almost unbearable. And then when something good happens and it releases, there's nothing like that feeling. Well, case in point, you know, people can complain that baseball is boring because nothing happens. Let's talk about a recent game that I was watching and that I reached out to you about this past Sunday night. Mm -hmm. Our old buddy, Bartolo Colon, (laughs) takes the mound against the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Bartolo then retires the first 21 batters in order. Justin Verlander, who's on the mound for Houston, gives up one hit. So we have seen Mm -hmm. seven innings of baseball. There has been one hit, one run, and it is nail-biting exciting. Every time Bartolo winds up and throws the ball, you are on the edge of your seat. And it was amazing. And the thing is, during that game, the community of fans plays a huge part because I texted every baseball fan that I have in my phone in my phone to be like, do you have this game on? Are you watching this? This is amazing. My favorite quote about the whole game, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this on Twitter, but it was like, Bartolo Colon is like going out and playing catch with your dad after dinner and your dad retires 21 Astros in a row. that is fantastic and the thing is with baseball you're absolutely right it's the moments in between that build up the tension and the expectation absolutely and that three game run back in 1999 that game four five and six regardless of the outcome of game six is one of the most exciting three game runs I've ever experienced. I had a couple of friends who, after they won game five, we started looking into, can we get flights down to Atlanta and tickets for game six? And we could have done it. It was really expensive, mm-hmm. but but we almost did. You know, in retrospect, that was the wrong move to make. Yeah. You know, back in 2015, Mets are playing in the World Series. I've waited a long time. It had been 15 years since I had a chance when the Mets were in the World Series in 2000, I was in Chicago mm-hmm. for work, and I couldn't, I couldn't get there. I watched all the games of that series alone in a hotel, and it was a miserable experience because short of calling my dad after the games or during the games, which was terrific, and I would love to do that now, um, it wasn't the same because I had no one to commiserate with. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going... I, My motto these days, and in 2015, basically, I bit the bullet, bought a standing room only ticket for the World Series, redeemed points for a flight to Mm -hmm. New York. I left here, I left LA on a Saturday morning, got to the game, watched the game, Mets lose. I go to the Neptune Diner in Astoria. I sit down and have cake and breakfast with my friends all night, and some family came out, went back to the airport, went home. Nice. if they make it to the postseason again this year, I may do the same thing all over again because you never know when you're going to get the you chance to do know. it. You never know. And, get, you know, in retrospect now, I'm wondering if we had actually bit the bullet and gone down for game six in Atlanta, whether or not us being there would have changed that outcome. Hmm. We'll never know. We'll never know. No. It is very much a devil went down to Georgia type <laughs> scenario <laughs> looking for a win to steal next time. Next time. Ah, that is a great story, and I think that we all have, we all have our superstitions. Yeah, we all have our. All right, I have to keep sitting where I'm sitting. Part of the reason that I, I keep the radio broadcast on is for some dumb reason. I think that listening on the radio is luckier yeah. than watching on TV. Totally, totally. So totally. If the Mets, like, if I'm, especially if I'm like watching on TV, yeah. and then I've got a lot of times what happens because of the timing is I'll start preparing dinner or I gotta take the dog out. Mm-hmm. So I'll switch to the radio broadcast 
And then I'm like, oh, this is clearly the lucky broadcast. Yes. Maybe yes. it's because on the radio, um, there's a lot more like you know talk of sort of the history. You know, I love the job Howie does. In fact, I, I had to compliment um, the job that he did specifically on that um, on the game where the Mets came back, not on the Cespedes home run, but the Todd Frazier hit earlier mm-hmm. in the game. I was like, wow, that was a great call. Yeah. The, yeah. the hit that tied it up. Um, yeah, radio is luckier than TV. That's, uh, that's the hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good hill. That's yeah. a good hill to die on. Yeah. So we've been going on for a while here, and I don't want to... Uh, I could pretty much go on all day about how I'm feeling about this team, but... Well, maybe we'll get to keep doing that in two weeks. I, I'd say so. So far, they're averaging two and a half losses per flushing transit episode. Okay. So I'm very comfortable if they keep that pace up. Yeah. Oh, no. That's going to. I mean, they're. Look, I know I make wild predictions about what the Mets are going to do. I just want to see them keep winning games. Win more than they lose is all I need. So here's my question for you In between now and the next time we record, when we come back next time, who is no longer on the team? It's ah, a good question because we will have passed May 1st. Mm-hmm. I would think that um, Jose Reyes is obviously the candidate for being um, for being designated for assignment, and I'm assuming he does not accept that assignment and ends up getting released. Mm-hmm. Um, my feelings about Jose Reyes are well documented, mm-hmm. and I don't need to talk about that any further. That is not only the good move from a baseball sense, um, you know, unless he is providing some sort of incredible aid to Ahmed Rosario, um, I just don't see how Reyes is anything other than a roster spot we could use for somebody else. Um, but as far as who else isn't on the team, you know, I think the way Callaway and Island manage the bullpen, I think your back three guys in the bullpen are always in flux. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Matt Harvey is still on this team. I think there's a very good chance that if the Mets end up making a move for a catcher, that Tomas Nito ends up being part of that deal. Mm-hmm. So I think that in the event they make a move in the next two weeks, um, Nito probably ends up part of that. I certainly think that one of Nito and Lobaton will no longer be with us. Right, but if yeah. you're a, if you're a, an opposing GM, mm-hmm. the younger. Yeah. Nito has got more upside. Lobaton is, you know, is Whether a solid... Whether they release Lobaton or send him back down. Right. Um, you know, Lobaton can definitely help another club as a backup. Um, you know, my fear is that um, Brandon Nimmo yeah. ends up somewhere else. I mean, this is the thing. To get value, you got to give value. And right. Brandon Nimmo's value is is... You could argue that he's at that point where... He might never actually have more value than he has right now, right? Which is a tough point to be at. Um, although sometimes you get um, you get you get uh, you get screwed by that kind of logic, right? Um, Daniel Murphy, yes. Case in point. Here's an interesting thought experiment for you. Do they re-sign Murphy in the offseason? His contract is up. Assume, let's assume he comes back from his knee surgery and right. he is the Daniel Murphy he has been for the last two years. Right. As Dribble Cabrera's contract is up, the Mets are going to need to come up with another long-term solution at second base. Right. Do they re-sign Murphy? I've always thought that there's bad blood between Murphy and the Mets front office. Mm. Just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I feel like Murphy didn't feel like he was appreciated by the team. And I think he would be hesitant Maybe. to give the team another try because of that. Um, another player to, uh, to keep in mind as a possible trade piece, because he's shown more value than he has in a long time, is Juan Lagares. Yeah. Um, you know, he's another candidate. Obviously, we, as Mets fans, we don't want to see any of the starters go. Right. But somebody suffers an injury... Um, meaning, you know, an injury to an opposing team, that makes guys like Lagaris and Nimmo really attractive pieces. And I think, obviously, Nimmo is the one who is perceived as having more upside. Yeah. Um, I have a hunch that they're probably going to, no matter what they're saying about not really investigating the catching market, <clears throat> my hunch is that they make a deal sooner rather than later and that that deal is bigger 
mm-hmm. rather than just a stopgap. And then finally, to keep throwing what ifs into mm-hmm. it, you know, there's value in, in Robert Gesellman and Seth Lugo. Yeah, absolutely. guys who are who can give you multiple innings out of the bullpen or start. That's why my hunch is that the person that probably would, if they're going to trade a pitcher, it'll be Zach. Um, because Zach Wheeler has done what we've talked about with Harvey, where he has shown he's come in and he has pitched really, really well two or three times through the rotation, mm-hmm. shown that he has value and upside. Um, he's not a lefty, which is why they won't probably won't trade Mets, even though Mets might get them more in mm-hmm. a trade. But because he's left-handed, I think they would hold on to him. But if you're going to trade from your starting depth and you, no one's going to take Harvey at this point, you're talking about Mats or Wheeler. Yeah. Um, especially when Vargas comes back, if he, you know, ever does. Um, they keep I, saying he's coming back, but I haven't seen it yet. I can't believe that his fans were like, ah, I just can't wait for Vargas to come back. I, I, I can't, it's not that I can't wait for him to come back. It's that when he does, he's going to force a move. Right. He does. And the thing is, he's a reliable arm. Yeah. He is what you want out of Matt Harvey right now. Yeah. A guy who can give you innings and, and save your bullpen and keep you in a game. So a lot's going to happen, we think, in the next couple of weeks. But the most important thing that could happen is they just keep winning. Yep. They do. Today, they play Atlanta again. Let's just hope for the best. Let's hope for the best. So on that note, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it. All right. All right. Thank you, Jay. This has been a blast, as always. We will see uh, you, as I like to say, at the baseball movies. (laughs) I'm going to force that catchphrase. Let's make it happen. See you at the baseball movies. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. (laughs) 